The US government has won its appeal at the High Court in London over the extradition of the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The US wants Assange to face trial over the release in 2010 of thousands of classified Going after documents. the publisher of information that a government deems classified or secret is a pretty illiberal and authoritarian thing to do. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Julian Assange is now one legal step closer to being extradited to the U.S. We look at a case that not enough news organizations care about. What did Fox News hosts really think about the D.C. riots last January 6th? Their text messages to the White House that day tell a story. The Turks turning to YouTube in search of the kind of reporting they can no longer find in the mainstream. And taking pride in a vast new prison complex. Egypt, one of the world's worst jailers of journalists, releases a bizarre promo video. It's been a week now since a pair of judges in London gave the go-ahead for the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States. Amnesty International called that ruling a travesty of justice. Press freedom groups have also condemned it in terms just as scathing. Washington wants to prosecute Assange for revealing state secrets that happen to include war crimes, revelations that WikiLeaks and the journalists and news outlets that reported those secrets as news stories deemed to be in the public interest. Not enough of those news outlets are standing up for Assange now, given how important a source he and WikiLeaks were back then. This latest court decision overturned an earlier ruling which opposed extraditing Assange due to his failing health and the conditions he would face in an American prison. Julian Assange has one more appeal coming, but his fate remains in the hands of the UK and the US governments whose secrets he helped expose. Our starting point this week is London. Irony alert. Friday, December 10th, 2021. The day a high court in London ruled that Julian Assange could be extradited to Washington happened to be United Nations Human Rights Day. It was the same day two other journalists were in Oslo receiving their Nobel Peace Prizes. Hypocrisy alert. It was also the day the Biden administration hosted more than 100 global leaders at what it called its Summit for Democracy. In terms of the international media cycle, it was a day where focus on journalism would have very much been on the Nobel Peace Prize because, of course, two journalists were receiving the Nobel that day, Maria Reza from the Philippines and Dmitry Muratov from Russia. And also on the U.S., where the Biden administration was concluding its big summit for democracy. We've shown a spotlight on the importance of protecting media freedom. Had convened states from around the world to discuss issues related to human rights, including media freedom. This court decision came on the day when statements were made by the Biden administration in support of press freedom as being the, uh, a, a prerequisite for democracy. And so it was frankly uh, grotesque to have on this day a British high court allowing Sanchez extradition. The last word on whether Julian Assange can be legally extradited to face charges for publishing classified U.S. government documents will now come from the U.K.'s Supreme Court. This latest ruling came following several assurances made by the U.S. to the British government 
that Assange will get a fair trial, despite the fact the CIA has already broken U.S. laws in gathering the evidence by illegally acquiring surveillance footage of meetings between Assange and his lawyers when he was at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. The U.S. has insisted the defendant will be safe in its custody, even though, as Yahoo News has reported, State Department operatives working under Donald Trump discussed ways to abduct Assange or assassinate him in 2017. The assurances the British court puts so much stock into were made by a country that has a habit of reneging on its international agreements. When you read the text of those assurances, you will quickly realize that those assurances didn't assure anything at all. The US has promised is that they will not detain Julian Assange in the most notorious supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. But now the United States has dozens of supermax prisons and they only excluded one. They also promised that they will not detain him under the so-called special administrative measures, but then only about 50 persons in the United States are under this current regime, while currently about 80,000 are in solitary confinement under different regimes. So, to put it bluntly, they really haven't uh, promised anything. We now know that there was a CIA plan to kill Julian Assange inside the embassy. It's not being denied. So you handing over a political prisoner to his executioners, or at least people who discussed seriously bumping him off, no doubt with the aid of British intelligence. They couldn't do it without their approval. So these assurances are not worth anything, quite honestly. Given the implications the Assange case has for other journalists, the news coverage of it consistently comes up short in terms of both scale and tone. Outlets that feasted on what WikiLeaks revealed about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the dark side of American diplomacy. The Guardian from this morning. News organizations like The Guardian, The New York Times, The BBC, have been muted in their reporting of the case and sometimes hostile. When the court issued its decision, The Guardian published an editorial calling for Assange's release but for a paper with a penchant for campaigning, there is a distinct lack of enthusiasm for the story. The Times has not put out an editorial on Assange since 2019. All three outlets have effectively distanced themselves from the source of some of their biggest stories, and their coverage reveals far more about them than it does about Julian Assange. The BBC coverage of the ruling was typical. A bland report from studio. They had to interview Assange's wife and they had to interview one other Assange supporter because it would have been too obvious not doing that. But the report of standing outside the courtroom, the bulk of that report was giving the government argument. Critically, the US has now given very key assurances that Mr. Assange, no matter how mentally ill he may be, will be treated humanely. And the Americans have given these assurances, etc., etc. The last case was worried about his health. That was enough to uh, convince the two of the most senior judges in the country. That is what the BBC has increasingly become now, the voice of the British state. And at the end of the day, the US is a democracy. There are protections within its whole judicial system and its criminal justice system. Often when we step outside court, the interviews that we're giving are not to British media. I have to say most of the interviews 
have been to other European media. I, I know there's a, a lot of German and French interest in the case, for example, or Australian uh, camera crews will also be there. I would expect this to get more coverage in the UK, the country where these proceedings have been taking place. The precedent that is being set here is alarming. If the US is successful in extraditing and prosecuting Julian Assange, we could see the very media partners that have published information based on these leaked documents targeted next. Too often, news organizations take their editorial leads from politicians. That has created another gaping hole in the narrative around Julian Assange. Mr. Speaker, I think he's lost his place in his notes again. Keir Starmer heads the Labour Party, the official opposition in the British Parliament. Leading figures in his party reacted to the latest court ruling with silence. Starmer is a lawyer who used to head the UK's Crown Prosecution Service. Back in 2012, when prosecutors in Sweden were considering dropping their bogus sexual assault investigation into Assange, British prosecutors working under Starmer lobbied against that, hard. They sent an email to Stockholm saying, don't you dare get cold feet. The Swedes ended up dropping the case anyway. But British thumbs had tried to tip the scales of Swedish justice on Keir Starmer's watch. Don't expect him to rock the boat on this. The role played by Keir Starmer is probably the most appalling role played by a British politician in this whole case. Because the so-called rapes didn't take place in Britain. Yet they got centrally involved under Keir Starmer when he was there. Pleading with the Swedes, don't withdraw your case. Meltzer, the UN reporter on torture, reveals all this. The head of the opposition in the UK, Keir Starmer, has a history in this case. And the revelations made by WikiLeaks referred back to a period when Labour was in fact the government. Over the years, governments have changed, different political parties have been in charge, but all of them have basically been responsible for those violations that were exposed by WikiLeaks. Light them all up. Come on, fire. And none of them were interested in the media focusing on those revelations and discussing government misconduct because clearly that would have led to legal proceedings potentially even against uh, political leaders. Instead, it's Julian Assange locked up in a London prison, recovering from a minor stroke under maximum security conditions. A journalist treated like a menace to society. What he really is, is a menace to governments, secretive ones, including two that like to talk up their democracies and export their values, so-called. People, especially in the US and UK, want to believe that we have rule of law, the same fundamental rights and freedoms that we promote in all parts of the world. But what is happening to Julian Assange is so clearly political. He has been targeted for his contributions to journalism and his treatment, especially if he is extradited to the United States and prosecuted there, will have implications uh, for public interest reporting around the world for many years to come. Turning to American politics now, the investigations into the January 6th Capitol Hill riot are proving damaging to Fox News. Tarek Nafa is keeping his social distance, but he's here with the details. Well, Richard, this story is about what Fox News hosts were publicly telling their audiences that night versus what they were privately texting the White House earlier in the day. 
The three Fox presenters, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and Brian Kilmeade, were all pro-Trump and still are. And as Congresswoman Liz Cheney, a member of the committee investigating the riot, revealed, they all texted Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, that day, imploring him to get the president to stop the violence. Multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Given what they told their viewers that night and thereafter, that left them with some explaining to do. Yeah, initially there was complete silence from Fox, but 24 hours later, Hannity and Ingram piped up. Last night, in a weak attempt to smear yours truly, and presumably, I guess, President Trump, Congresswoman Cheney presented one of my text messages from January 6th to Mark Meadows. Uh, surprise, surprise, surprise. This sent left-wing media hacks into spin and defame mode. Now, of course, the regime media was somehow trying to twist this message to try to tar me as a liar, a hypocrite who probably- The general message from both of them was that their texts to Meadow were consistent with what they told viewers. And Ingram actually reran the opening of her January 6th show as part of her defense this week. Earlier today, the Capitol was under siege by people who can only be described as antithetical to the MAGA movement. Now, there were likely not all Trump supporters, and there are some reports that Antifa sympathizers may have been sprinkled throughout the crowd. We'll have more. It is true that Ingram and Hannity publicly condemned the violence, but the mention of Antifa, reference to left-wing anti-fascists, was revealing and completely unsubstantiated. It was designed to sow doubt. If only Fox's coverage of the riots had been as clear as those text messages were. Okay, thanks, Tark. There are plenty of negative headlines coming out of Turkey these days. The lira plunging to record lows, rocketing inflation, an economy in decline. Luckily for the Erdogan government, it's got most of the news media there under control. More than 85% of Turkey's mainstream media is in the hands of conglomerates that are aligned with the government. The president is a fixture on television, and hundreds of journalists have either been attacked, jailed, or have fled the country. Some independent voices have taken refuge online, like Junaid Ozdemir. His daily YouTube program has become a staple for Turks, younger viewers in search of journalism of a different kind. Ozdemir has his critics, however. They say his decision to remain editorially neutral makes him complicit in what this government does. His middle-of-the-road approach looks like a survival strategy in a country that has just introduced yet more legislation curbing freedom of information online. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on the Turkish journalists who have swapped the broadcast airwaves for life on YouTube. Suleyman Soylu, Turkey's interior minister, a President Erdogan loyalist. Ekrem Emamolu, Mayor of Istanbul, a central figure in the main opposition party. Şeyma Subaşı, actress and fashion designer, a Turkish celebrity. What do they all have in common? They've all been guests on Junaid Uzdemir's YouTube channel.
We started filling a vacuum. Journalists have not been able to conduct independent and free journalism on Turkey's mainstream channels. So there's been a shift towards social media. Like when the Minister of Finance posted his resignation on Instagram. Everyone kept quiet, all mainstream media. At midnight, I launched a live broadcast, breaking news style. At 3 a.m., 150,000 people were still watching us. These are surreal numbers. The resignation of the finance minister was big news, just not on TV. The mainstream didn't touch it, perhaps because the Minister of Finance just happens to be President Erdogan's son-in-law. And getting on the wrong side of the president is ill-advised in Turkey. So YouTube has become a go-to, not just for mainstream journalists looking for a digital refuge, but for viewers looking for independent information delivered in an appealing way. Cüneyt Özdemir's style suits YouTube. It's an entertainment platform more than it is an information site. So your success depends on how much you can engage with people, entice them. Junaid has been inspired by American late-night talk shows, and he's mixed in his own humor. It's a style that really works for Generation Z. Hundreds and thousands of young people who don't normally follow news or politics follow Junaid's program. Özdemir's more than one million subscribers flock to his daily show, in part because he's no amateur, rather a veteran of the Turkish airwaves. He spent the majority of his career in television and still freelances for CNN Turk. But in 2017, he swapped the mainstream for the live stream. I was CNN Turk's New York correspondent at the time, and there was an important hearing, a case that heavily involved Turkey. The editorial management said they didn't want a daily report from outside the court, so I decided to follow the case myself. I began broadcasting on YouTube as a matter of necessity. What did I have to lose? Özdemir isn't the only mainstreamer who's migrated. The man credited as Turkey's digital pioneer is Rushen Chaka. Back in 2015, after repeatedly being censored, Chaka created a platform called Medioscope. It instantly attracted like-minded journalists and remains a top Turkish YouTube channel for independent news and analysis. Then there's Fatih Portakal. Until last year, he was a celebrated anchor on Fox TV, one of the few non-government-aligned outlets left. But after several fines charged to the channel, Portakal resigned and turned to the tube, taking his followers with him. But perhaps the most famous Turkish YouTuber of late isn't actually a journalist at all. He's the president. In June 2020, Erdogan hosted a live stream on YouTube in an attempt to attract support from Generation Z. It backfired, 
badly. Thousands of criticisms poured in, and the hashtag you won't receive our votes started trending. Erdogan ordered the comment section to be disabled. Just five days later, he delivered this speech to members of his ruling party. Fast forward three months and the introduction of a new bill, stipulating that all social media companies with more than one million daily users must open offices in Turkey. Offices that will soon have just 24 hours to delete content that causes offence to the government. After the social media law took effect in October 2020, most international digital media corporations, including YouTube and Google, fulfilled the requirements appointing a Turkish representative. So thus far, the government effort to increase control over the social media sphere has succeeded. We haven't yet seen the full effects of this law. The real test will be when these social media giants receive demands from the government like delete this account or block this message. If they fully abide by the letter of the law, then the digital spaces that have allowed for our voices to be heard will be limited and will be eclipsed as a result. Anyone trying to practice critical journalism will become a target. Being a target of the government is something Turkish journalists know all too well. They even have a joke for it, Slivri Sogotur, which directly translates as Slivri must be cold. It refers to one of Turkey's largest prisons, the place where they could end up if they don't tow the government line. And many have. Dozens of journalists remain in Turkish jails. Hundreds are on trial on baseless charges. Thousands are unemployed or they self-censor. So it's easy enough to see why someone might be wary of pushing back against the Erdogan administration. Playing it safe is something Uzdemir's critics have accused him of. But when I put this to him, he told me he doesn't see it that way. Turkey is so polarized that everyone wants to hear their own version of the truth. The 50% who support the government only want to hear their version. The 50% who oppose the government only want to hear theirs. We have opened a space between these two communities. That's why what we do annoys both sides. There are moments when I think that his broadcasting is lacking and marred with shortcomings, and that I would do it differently. But however annoyed we might be with Junaid's journalism, we have to accept that he is able to do something we had lost. He can have everyone on his program. I think he's making a choice, a choice not to attract criticism. With the social media law looming over him, Uzdemir may be onto something. There's an election on the horizon in 2023, if not sooner, and there's a battle for the hearts and minds, or rather for the clicks and votes, of Generation Z, many of whom will be casting their ballots for the first time. Currently, one side in this social media battle is a lot more popular than the other, and the president knows it. Of course the government wants to keep social media under control, but I don't see it happening in such a diversified social media environment. If you shut down YouTube, there's Twitter. If you shut down Twitter, there's WhatsApp. If you shut down WhatsApp, there's Signal. If you shut down Signal, there's Telegram. 
there will always be another medium. And finally, in Abdel Fattah el-Sisi's Egypt, forced disappearances, torture, and mass death sentences have grown common, yet those are stories that too often go untold. Consider the numbers. Half of the Egyptians currently behind bars, 60,000 of them, are political prisoners. And half of them, 30,000 people, are in what's known as pretrial detention. Their cases haven't gone to court. They haven't been convicted of a crime. The prisons are jammed. According to Amnesty International, they're holding twice the number of people that they were built for. So the release of a government video a few weeks back hyping the facilities at a vast new prison complex just outside Cairo and the care on offer there was as cruel as it was absurd. We'll leave you now with a song called A Chance to Live. It was produced by Egypt's Ministry of the Interior. We'll see you next time here at the Listening Post. قادر يكون إنسان جديد من حقه فرصة للحياة هنساعد ويبدأ من جديد وكل حب إحنا معاه هنأهله وناخد بإيده نعلمه صنعة تفيد وتبقى ليه طوق النجاة للحكاية فكرة انت فيها وهيبتدي المشوار